You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. As we look at our uh, text tonight, our passages in, in 1 Samuel, there's, there's a couple points that I want us to kind of take note of, just sort of mini themes, if you will, overarching uh, themes to these chapters. Uh, one is that good men do stupid things. Good people do stupid things. Godly people do stupid things. And if you can relate to that, then you're a lot like me. Because I know that, that I'm saved. I know that, that I'm going to heaven. I know that, that I love the Lord with all of my heart, but I know I do stupid stuff. And, and I make stupid decisions, and I say stupid things, and, and yet um, I, I'm still in, in the, the grace and the, in the goodness of the Lord. Thank God for that. And so good people do stupid things. It's kind of a mini theme. Another is that our decisions affect others. And sometimes I think that we have this idea that, you know what? I'm just a nobody. Nobody knows who I am. I'm not a who's who. I'm a who's he. And what, you know, what, what is it? What could possibly uh, really be the big deal about what the decisions that I make. And yet we're going to see tonight that our decisions affect others, and they have repercussions that are long-lasting. And then also, it's a little cheesy, but honesty is always the best policy. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to see that tonight. So, 1 Samuel chapter 21. And you remember the context is that David has come to the place that he realizes that his only alternative is to flee from Saul. There's, there's no other way that this is going to work out because every time that David is near Saul, Saul is throwing spears at him. He's trying to kill him. Saul is going insane and getting more insane by the day. His jealousy has so enraged him that he can't even see straight. And his one goal in life is to kill David. And David realizes, I've got to get out of here. And David has come to the end of himself. He was on top of the world, married to the king's daughter, living in the palace, in charge of a thousand men, preparing to be king himself, anointed to be king. He had a great friend in Jonathan, the the king's son. Things couldn't be better for David. And yet now, David is going to be fleeing for his life having lost his family, lost his position, lost his wealth, lost his best friend Jonathan. He's not in contact with Samuel. It's a lonely and dark place. And maybe that's kind of how you feel in life right now. Just kind of lonely. It's dark. You're going through difficulties and trials. You feel like the the carpet has been pulled out from under you. And it says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? This is a legitimate concern because David is big time. He's the king's son-in-law. He's a military commander. He had killed Goliath. He's a celebrity. These types of people don't travel alone. Even today in our culture, celebrities don't travel alone. They've always got an entourage. And This priest is like, okay, what's going on here? Why are you alone, David? 
So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business. That's a lie. We know it is. Because David is not trying to accomplish the king's business. He's fleeing from the king's business, which is to kill him. And so this is a lie. This is sort of the beginning of what's going to be a bit of a downward spiral for David. As I said, one of the themes is that honesty is the best policy. Now, I can understand why David is going to get himself into this mess. It makes perfect sense, and I probably would have done the same thing. But this is not a good decision on David's part. He says, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, from all accounts... We don't know of any group of men that David's with at this point. Now, later he's going to have a group of 400 men, as we'll see in the next chapter. And then even after that, he'll have 600 men. But at this point, we don't know of any men that are with David. And so this is probably another lie to, to try to cover himself a little bit, that he's, he does have people with him. They just aren't exactly there. They're, they're out in the... The bushes, I guess. And so he says, I, I've got these men. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. So David's he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in what looks like to be three days. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Now, this bread is the show bread. And when you entered into the, at what this point in time would be the tabernacle, on the left hand would be the, the seven-branch candelabra, the menorah. On the right-hand side would be the table of showbread, and it would always have 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was to speak of the fact that God wanted to commune with His people. It was to speak to the fact that God wanted to just simply eat with His people. That he was their bread, their sustenance, and that he wanted to have a relationship with them. And in the Jewish culture, eating was all about relationship. And so the, the people would just simply have the opportunity to see the priest eating before the Lord. And it was a, a way to show relationship. And once a week, this showbread would be replaced. And when they would take the showbread off the table, those 12 loaves would be eaten by the priests. And they would be replaced by fresh loaves. And so this is what the, the priest meant when he said there's no common bread. They would make extra bread to eat for themselves as well throughout the week. And that would be common bread. But this bread, the, the, the show bread, was holy bread. And it was only to be eaten by priests. And he says, look, we don't have any common bread on hand. We've eaten all of it. But there is some show bread Technically, only the priests are allowed to eat that. But look, I know you're hungry, and I know you're on the king's business. So if you've at least kept yourself sexually pure, then, then you can go ahead and have it. And David's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've, we've done that. He says, truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels, or our bodies... The vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place 
on the day when it was taken away. Now, if you fast forward a thousand years, you remember Jesus and his disciples going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees complaining that Jesus' disciples were plucking the heads of grain and eating it on the Sabbath because it wasn't lawful to do. And this is in Matthew chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. But it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so they were all about the letter of the law. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And so what Jesus was instructing the Pharisees was that God cares more about mercy and about grace than he does about the letter of the law. Than he does about approaching God in this crusty, legalistic kind of a relationship. That what God wants is for us to approach him by grace and and through his mercy. And that's something that David understood even a thousand years before Jesus. That God was way more concerned about relationship than he was about the letter of the law. That this showbread was only for the priest. God wasn't that concerned with that. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doag, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Now, this is kind of a foreshadowing, and the Old Testament does this a lot. And we're going to see Doeg in the next chapter. And, and this is to kind of point us to things to come. And good authors and, and good movie writers do that. And the Holy Spirit being the chief artist, the, the chief author, the chief screenwriter, if you will, understood how to, to foreshadow. And so keep Doeg in mind. Why he's here in Nob which, by the way, has sort of become the replacement city of Shiloh. Because you remember Shiloh was the, the place that the, the tabernacle was set up for many years. But then the Philistines destroyed Shiloh because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And so now they've moved the tabernacle and the priests are here in Nob. And that's why David would have went there. And it shows you a little bit about David that when things got difficult, he went to the place of worship. He went to the, to the people who represented God. And you know, the Proverbs talks about how unwise it is to isolate yourself. And it's interesting that you really see people and where they're at with the Lord when they go through difficulties. And sometimes it's sad for me to see people who when they're struggling and when they're hurting, they isolate themselves rather than going to the people of God and to the place of worship, they, they isolate. But David doesn't do that. He goes to the place of worship, and Doeg is here, and it says he's detained before the Lord. It doesn't 
mean that Doeg has a heart for God because he's going to clearly reveal that he doesn't. What it means is that he probably had some type of obligation to ceremonially be there in order to um, meet the requirements of his position uh, in the king's palace. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? Kind of interesting. I mean, like, why would they have weapons in the tabernacle? It's like, if you're going to get a weapon, you probably don't think, you know, I'm going to go down to the church and get a weapon, you know. (laughs) Maybe here in Prineville, you know, you never know. We might have a stash of guns back there. Is there not a sword or a spear? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. There's another lie. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Now this is interesting, because when David stepped up to fight Goliath, he recognized that it wasn't about his weapons. And you remember that all he had was a sling and some stones, and he killed the giant that no one else was willing to fight. He recognized that it wasn't about his weapons, it wasn't about his military ability, it wasn't about his strength physically, it was about God being behind him in the endeavor. But now David seems to have a different perspective. And this can happen to us daily, right? One day you make good decisions, And you make God decisions. One day you are having the perspective of the Lord. You are doing things in such a way that that glorify God. But the next day, or even the next hour, seemingly, you're making decisions based on your flesh and out of fear and out of what seems right to you logically. And this is what's happening with David, I think, because he should realize of anybody, that he doesn't need this weapon. He doesn't need Goliath's sword. He doesn't need a spear to do what God has for him. David's running scared, and maybe you're in that place. Maybe your finances have you running scared right now, and you're making decisions that you know aren't right. They're fleshly decisions. They're decisions that that make sense to you logically, but just a week ago, you were, you were talking about how that you were going to trust God and, and that God was going to take care of your needs and, and He was going to provide. But, but now you've forgotten about that and now you're doing things that you know are, are out of the Lord's will and you need to get back on track. I think that's where David's at. He needs to get back on track. And, and just like I said, good people make stupid decisions. David is a good guy. David loves the Lord. David's a guy that has a heart for God, but he makes a lot of stupid decisions. We're going to see those in our trek through the life of David. David was a terrible father. His family was in absolute ruins. David was not a great leader, even. He, He makes a lot of decisions based on politics rather than on what God would have him to do. And this is one of those times where where David is making some bad decisions. And it says that David arose, he took Goliath's sword, and he fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, this again seems like a really weird decision. And I think when you're making bad decisions, 
they begin to snowball. Have you ever noticed that? That one bad decision kind of leads to another, which leads to another. And why David would choose to go to Gath makes no sense. It's, it's enemy ground. Now, I guess it could make sense in the sense that maybe he feels like Saul would never look for him there. But again, that's out of fear, isn't it? But Gath was the home of Goliath. So you're going to take Goliath's sword into Gath? And it says in verse 11, The servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. All of a sudden, I think it it sort of clicks in David's mind. You know what? This was a bad idea. Why I chose to go to the home of Goliath, the the man, the hero that I killed. Now they're going to want to kill me. You think about it like this. You know, every four years we watch the Olympics. Now it's every two years, I guess. But we watch the Olympics, Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics. and, And we get all excited about activities and sports that we would never get excited about. Like, I really could care less about gymnastics. I mean, just never would really even care to watch them at all. But during the Olympics, it's like all of a sudden, I am the biggest fan of these four foot two, 13-year-olds, right? And I mean, you don't want to see them fail at all. And, and, and you're, you know, you're like, wow, they stuck it, you know, and you're acting like you just know what you're talking about. And, and you're rooting for four foot two, 12-year-olds from China to break their necks, you know. And... It's, be, it's all because of patriotism. We want our country to win. We want to get the most golds. We want to win the most medals. But it's even more so when you find out that an athlete is from Oregon or from Central Oregon or from, you know, Prineville or Crook County. I mean, it would be like amazing. You, you would be so enthralled with it. You, you just want your local person to do well, right? Now picture this. Goliath was their hometown hero. He was a champion, a military champion. And this David killed him. And they weren't happy about that. And all of a sudden, David realizes, I don't know what I'm doing here. David took these words to heart. He was afraid. Now somewhere, you guys, in the midst of this, I believe that it was... Somewhere probably between verse 12 and verse 13, David wrote wrote Psalm 56. And you don't need to turn there, but listen to what David writes. As I believe that David's perspective is being changed. And that David is beginning to realize, it's not about me. It's not about my ability. It's it's not going to be me running from Saul that's going to protect me. God's my protector. And listen to what he says in Psalm 56. We know that he wrote this at this time because the heading says, A Psalm of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. You see how David's perspective is being changed? Because I don't think that's the way David was thinking up to this point. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, 
I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? And anger cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? And so David's perspective has changed. As he's now incarcerated by these men who are angry with him because he has killed their hero, their hometown hero, Goliath. And David realizes that the only way he's going to get out of this is to make the king feel sorry for him. And so he changed his behavior, verse 13, before them. Pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? In other words, Achish said, He's not worth my time. Get this guy out of here. I think Achish isn't quite sure that this is even David. Because they would have told him, King, this is, this is David, the one that killed Goliath. And as he sees him allowing saliva to run on his beard, which would have been a huge embarrassment in that culture. The, the man's beard was his pride. You didn't mess with a guy's beard. And, and letting... Saliva run down his beard, scratching at the door, pretending madness, pretending to be insane. This is the lowest of the low for David. And I think the king was like, you know what? I'm not even sure if that is David, and if it is, I feel sorry for him. He's not worth my time. Get him out of here. And it was there that David departed and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And it was in the cave of Adullam, you guys, that David wrote several psalms. One that I've referred to several times, Psalm 34. And you can read it later on your own. It's there that David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And I wonder if we could write that psalm. At the lowest point in our life, and we've talked about all the things that have led up to this point in David's life, all the things that would make you say, this is a bummer for David. And now it's even got worse. He's pretended to be insane before the king. He's all alone in a cave. And what does he say? I will bless the Lord at all times. You guys, in in times that are tough, in difficult times, maybe right now, can you say that? I will bless the Lord at all times. That's a lesson that we need to learn from David. That in our difficulty, we can praise the Lord. Just like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that we looked at on Sunday... In everything, give thanks. David understood that principle. Not for everything. David wasn't praising God that he was all alone, that he had lost everything, that he had just pretended to be insane, that he's in a cave and he's hungry and he's thirsty and Saul wants to kill him. He's not praising God for that, but in it, 
He's willing to give God praise because of who God is. Do you see the difference? And no matter what you're going through right now, Jesus is worthy of your praise. And you are short-selling God if you only worship Him when things are going well for you. You have a small God. You have a, a genie in a bottle kind of a gospel. You, you have a God who you want to be at your beck and call. That's not a relationship. See, we have surrendered our life to the Lord by which we have said, God, whatever you bring my way, I will accept and I will recognize that it's from your hand and I will praise you in the midst of it because you're worthy of my praise because you never change. See, and David understood that. David understood what it was like to be at the bottom and yet to have your eyes firmly planted on Jesus. And, and I think for some of us, we need to realign our, our thoughts. We need to have our perspective changed because as Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 5 as well, rejoice always. We can have continual joy no matter what we're going through because of who Jesus is. And if your joy is rooted in your circumstances, then when you're in the cave of Adullam, you won't write Psalm 34. You'll write a psalm of your own making that talks about how angry you are at God, that talks about how God doesn't love you, that talks about how sorry you feel for yourself. And you'll become more of a Saul than you will a David. And you'll begin to take a spear in your hand and, and throw them at those who get in your way. And you'll begin to be filled with pessimism and cynicism. Or you can have your eyes set upon the Lord and say, God, no matter what happens, you're worthy of my praise. I will rejoice always in everything. I will give thanks. David also wrote Psalm 142 while in this cave. And it says this, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare before Him my trouble. And see, in your difficulty, God wants you to give it to Him. God wants you to, to just give Him your heart, to, to tell Him what's on your mind, to pour out your life before Him. He doesn't want phoniness. He doesn't want us to be fake. And that's what David does. And you can imagine the conversation that David would have had with God in this cave as he lifts his voice to the Lord, as he pours out his complaint before him. And when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. Amazing words from a, from a guy that was in the situation that he was in. And so David is here in the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now how they heard about where David was at doesn't tell us. But somehow his family heard where he was, which is interesting because you remember that when David was anointed king, his family wasn't exactly behind him, but now they are. And I love verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, which means bitter of soul gathered to him. 
So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Later this will increase to 600 men. But this is David's army. David's mighty men, they'll be called. And I love that they're in distress, they're in debt, and they're discontented. That's David's guys. It, it kind of sounds like what oftentimes when you, when you go to plant a church, the, the, the people that God brings, the, those that are just struggling and hurting and discontented with the church, and he became captain over them. This was David's motley crew. These were the, the guys that just had had enough of Saul. They couldn't take it anymore. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Interesting, because again, David's family was, was pretty, pretty rude to him and, and, and treated him terribly and treated him like a second-class citizen, didn't even think he was worthy to be invited to the coronation when Samuel came. And then even after that, his, his brothers treated him disrespectfully. But we see that David goes above and beyond what he even needs or has to do. And we see that David, in the midst of his difficulties, is thinking of other people. Because I don't know about you, but if I was in David's situation, I probably wouldn't be thinking about my family that much. Be thinking about, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to cover my own backside? And yet David is thinking about protecting his family. And he brings them to Moab, which you remember that David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabitess. And so David, remembering that, knowing that he has some connection there, takes his family to Moab, a place where they would be safe. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go in the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Harith. And so this prophet Gad, who we have no idea who he is, he's not mentioned ever again, he appears out of nowhere, he, he tells David some, some insight. And David heeds the prophecy wisely. And so we see that God's hand is on David and that God is, is taking care of him. And when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand. He doesn't go home without his, leave home without his spear. He's always got it. And all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? And so Saul's going to get very political here. Listen, Benjamites, I'm one of you. But David, he's from Judah. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't have your interests in mind. He's the son of Jesse, by the way. Notice how Saul doesn't call him the champion, the one that slew Goliath, my son-in-law. He calls him the son of Jesse because Jesse was a, a poor farmer. This was the, the, the lowest title that he could give David so that everybody would be like, yeah, who is this guy anyway? He doesn't have our interests in mind. He doesn't care about us. He's from Judah. We're Benjamites. All of you have conspired against me, Saul says. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me. Oh, woe is me. None of you feel sorry for me. 
or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. None of you care about me, is what Saul is saying. Then answered Doag the Edomite. And so here's Doag again. You remember I told you there was a little foreshadowing going on. Well, here he is. He was set over the servants of Saul, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatub. And he inquired of the Lord for him. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Ahimelech did that. Now, he may have, but the text doesn't say that. It could be that Doeg is trying to make the story a little juicier. That he gave him provisions. He did do that. He gave him the showbread. And gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? And so Ahimelech is a guy that says it like it is. He's not intimidated by Saul. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And so Ahimelech is just saying, look, I was ignorant of the tension that existed between you and David. And I didn't do anything other than what I thought was helping you. Because David had said that he was doing your business. Now, this is where it's going to become apparent that David's decisions don't only affect him. And it's also going to be apparent that honesty is the best policy because David, when he went to Ahimelech, should have just told him the truth. But out of his fear, he couldn't do that. And right now, maybe you're in a situation where you're, you're telling some white lies to, to try to cover yourself, to try to make things work. You, you're, you're twisting things to make them look better than they are to try to get that loan, possibly. You're, you're, you're making things out to be something that they aren't out of your fear. And know this, that it will have repercussions that are devastating. It, it will find you out. And see, David put Ahimelech in a really terrible and awkward situation. Because either way, Ahimelech was going to receive the wrath of Saul. By going to him and telling him this lie, he put Ahimelech in a really terrible situation. He should have just been up front with him. He should have given Ahimelech the opportunity to say, you know what, I don't want to have any part of this. But he didn't do that because of his fear. And Saul said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And so Saul's madness only goes so far. These guys aren't willing to take it 
to this extreme. They're, they're not going to do it. I think they're, they're saying in their mind, you know what, Saul? We've been doing your insane things. We've been following along with your tirade here, and we're not going to do it anymore. We're, we're, we're putting an end to this at this point. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Interesting that back in chapter 15 when Samuel was instructed to kill every one of Agag's people, the Amalekites, every one of them, all of their animals, all of their children, all of the women, don't take any of the money, don't take any of the treasure, leave it all behind, and he compromised. And yet here, he's willing to kill innocent people who God didn't instruct him to kill. And that's because Saul is not following God's commands, he's following his own commands. Saul's doing what seems right to himself. He could care less about God's word. And you guys, this is where jealousy brings you. If, if you're in a position right now where, where you're envious and jealous and it's beginning to eat at you, this is where it takes you to insanity, to hurting others, to taking it out on people who have nothing to do with it. This is where Saul's insanity led him because he was so jealous of David. It started with just hearing that song. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and he couldn't handle it. And it drove him to insanity. If you've got jealousy in your heart right now, if you're, if you're envious, man, you need to allow the Lord to root that out of your life because it will kill you and it will destroy those around you. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me you shall be safe. A couple things in closing. David recognizes that his decisions had repercussions that were way beyond his own life. That his bad decision-making had cost the lives of 85 priests. And this would be a huge lesson for David. And I hope that we can learn as we read this that trying to take care of things in our own flesh, that trying to manipulate and trying to make things appear to be something they're not, to cover ourselves because of our own fear, that it will have repercussions, that our stupidity and our sin affects other people, and sometimes in major ways. And you may be thinking, my decisions don't affect other people. I'm a nobody. But they do, and they will. And you can just think of, of all of the implications and the applications of how your decisions affect others. And we've got to be careful that we're making good decisions that are centered and rooted in the Lord and that we're asking for his wisdom. Something else is that David says, look, those who seek my life, they seek yours as well. You're not safe. 
going back. You need to stay with me. You'll be safe with me. And David had come to that realization there in the cave. He'd come to that realization as he wrote in Psalm 142, as I read earlier, he had come to the realization that the Lord was his refuge, that he was his portion in the land of the living. That's the the realization that David had come to in the midst of what seemed like a terrible situation, God revealed to him, look, I'm your protector. Quit trying to take things into your own hands. Let me work this out. Because think about it, you guys. Saul wanted to kill this priest and the other priests, and he did it. He killed all 85 of them. It was no problem. But why is Saul having such a difficult time killing David? Because God didn't want him to. God allowed him to kill the 85 men, But here was all of these opportunities where David is standing feet from him. Saul throws a spear. He ought to be able to hit him. Time and again, he's had opportunity to kill David. David is able to get away. All this time we're going to read about with David fleeing and going from cave to cave and Saul almost getting to him and David slipping out right underneath his nose. Why is that? Because God had his hand on David. Because God had a plan. That David was going to be the one that would bring the Messiah to the world. That David's ancestors would bring Jesus, one greater than David. And God had a great plan. And nothing was going to get in the way of that. Even though David doubted that at times. And you know what, you guys? God has a great plan for you. And nothing will happen to you unless God allows it. And if God has something for you, then he will bring it to pass, even if it seems like it could never happen. And so don't try to make it happen. See, David was trying to make it happen. I'm going to protect myself. There was no better protection than God. And if God has something for you, he will do it. He will make it happen. And your plans and your schemes are not better than God's plans. Good people do stupid things, but praise the Lord for his grace. God didn't give up on David, and God won't give up on us. God had an amazing plan for David, and he was going to bring him through it, even though David would take some side roads to get there at times. And God has an amazing plan for our lives, you guys. And in the midst of that, there are times where we find ourselves in the cave of Adullam at the bottom. And God wants us to be able to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I hope you can say that with David. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do that tonight, to close in worship. Stuart's going to come up, and we're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord tonight, giving God praise no matter what you're going through. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.